you imagine the throne room of God? Can you imagine the throne room of God? I, I, I sometimes try. I, I really do. Sometimes I try to sit back and I try to think about God. I try to think about heaven. I try to think, uh, you know, these, these far out thoughts. And, and just to be completely honest with you, most of the time I don't agree with Mercy Me. <laughs> I can't imagine it. I try, and, and, and I picked this song because I wanted our hearts uh, to sort of start in that direction. I wanted our minds to be focusing in on the Savior and His glory and all of His magnificence. I wanted our hearts to be pointed that direction. But when I try, when I sit down, when I think about heaven, when I think about what it will be, I can't imagine it. What I do imagine, and, and I don't know, maybe y'all are in, in this boat with me, what I do imagine oftentimes is, is this picture that I have of Jesus in my head, okay? I got this own picture of Jesus in my head. So when I think of, of Jesus uh, in heaven, sometimes I'll think and I'll look up and I, I will have my eyes closed and see a, a man with a beard wearing something like a toga that is shining really, really bright, okay? And this is my picture of glory. This is my picture of heaven. And for some reason, I have a feeling that falls really, really far short, okay? I just have this, this feeling that it doesn't quite match up to the reality of it. But have you ever thought, have you ever stopped to imagine, to think about God, the Father? Have you ever thought about what Scripture teaches us at the end of the book of Revelation? That it teaches us that we will walk with the Father, He will be our God, and we will be His people, and we will be in such close proximity to Him, yet at the same time, His glory will be bright enough that we will not need the sun. His glory will be warm enough that we will not need the sun. Have you imagined that? I just can't get started. <laughs> I don't know where to begin. I think about, I think about the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit's role in our lives is to make us, to sanctify us and make us more and more like the Father, growing in Him and learning Him and, and just absolutely becoming like the Father. And for eternity, the Holy Spirit pouring Himself into us as we continue to grow and grow and grow and grow forever into the Father. Can you imagine that? What about eternity in and of itself? What about the fact that we are forever, forever, forever going to be in eternal bliss, eternal peace, eternal joy? What about that? I can't wrap my mind around these things. I fall far short. I love how Francis Chan puts it in his book, Crazy Love. He says, many spirit-filled authors have exhausted the thesaurus in order to describe the God with the glory he deserves. His perfect holiness, by definition, assures us that our words cannot contain Him. Isn't it a comfort to worship a God we cannot exaggerate? And so, this morning, this morning, I ask you to take a sit back, seat back and just sit for a moment in awe. Sit for a moment in awe. This is not going to be what I typically do on a Sunday morning in the sense that I'm going to challenge you to, to live your life in such a way according to the Scriptures. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to sit back in awe. And we are going to look at our Savior. And we are going to look... Uh, we, we're just going to look at his, the mystery of God. And we are going to look at the greatness of our God. And the way that we're going to do that is the way that God enabled someone to do that 2,000 years ago. A man named John. A man that should have been killed. A man that was taken into the Roman Colosseum and put in a vat of boiling oil. But God said, oh no, not my servant. <laughs> God said, no, it's not his time. 
And so he could not be killed. And they recognized that. And so they sent him off into a small little island called Patmos. And, and there God showed up. There Jesus showed up to John. And in his showing up, he says, I want you to tell these things to my church. And I want you to tell them about the things that are to come. But the way that he exposes it to him is he takes him in his spirit up to the very throne room of God. And let's join him there. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. That's not even our key text. I just want to read it so our hearts will be there. Okay? Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 says, after, or 1 through 11, excuse me, says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living, living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things. And by Your will, they were created and have their being. Wow. <laughs> wow. Can you get your hearts there? Can you get your minds there? Can you get your hearts into the throne room of God? Can you picture this holy, holy, holy worship service where the truth of the matter is there is nothing but one goal, and that is to worship the Heavenly Father? Celestial beings are falling prostrate before God and they are laying low in humility and they are bowing down in honor of their king. And we have joined in this text, we, you and me, we have joined the Apostle John in a moment where we are encountering the brilliance and we are encountering the majesty and we are encountering the holiness and we are encountering the power of Almighty God. And we cry out. We cry out in joy. We cry out in amazement. Holy God, we are crying out all of chapter 4. What an amazing worship service. And then we get to chapter 5. And then we get to chapter 5, and there is a divine dilemma. There is a divine dilemma. That's what we're going to talk about. Chapter 4 is the worship service to God the Father. And we're going to turn the page just slightly in chapter 5. That's where we're going to rest. So let's pray real quick. Father, I love you. 
I praise You. I exalt You. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are ruler. You are creator. You are master. You are everything good. Father, I love You. I praise You. God, I ask in this moment that You would tune our hearts with Yours. Father, You would help us to see You in Your glory. And Father, that You indeed would come and fill this place with Your glory by Your Holy Spirit. Father, would You come? God, would You use this time, speak through me as I stand upon the authority of Your Word, but behind the cross so that You may receive all of the glory. May this time be about You. May You be highly lifted up. May You be exalted. May You be enthroned in our hearts. God, I love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let us read our text where we, where we find our struggle. Uh, Revelations chapter 5, verses 1 through 4 says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that is God the Father, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who? Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. We are in the throne room of God. We are in blissful joy. We are overwhelmed by what we see. We are overwhelmed by what we experience. We are crying tears of joy. And then like that... The attitude changes. We are no longer crying tears of joy. We are no longer crying tears of hope. But we are crying tears of anguish. And our anguish is centered around this scroll. The Father pulls out this scroll. And what John notices about this scroll, if he, he looks at it and he can only really tell a couple of things about this scroll. And what he notices about this scroll is that it has writing on both sides. That is, it's completely full. Whatever is written on this scroll, if you looked at it, if you unfurled the whole thing, you looked at one side, you looked at the other side, it is written from top to bottom on both sides. And what does that tell us? There's no more space to add anything. The scroll is God's consummation of history. It is the end of all things. It is what God is, it's God's plan. Okay, this is it. This is all that we have. This is whatever is left for all eternity. This is it. This is the consummation of what God is doing. It is the final judgment for sinners, and it is the final reward for saints. This is a good thing. But there's a problem. It's sealed. It is sealed. And if no one can open this seal, then what we have just experienced with the Father in chapter 4 is no more than a moment. What we have just experienced, the brilliance and the splendor of the Father in chapter 4 becomes nothing more than a story in a book. If the scroll cannot be opened, then eternity is lost. Do you understand? Do you see John's anguish? Can you feel John's anguish? He didn't want to lose forever what he had lived his whole life waiting to receive. So he cries out in anguish. Who can open this scroll? Please, dear God, there has to be someone who can open this scroll. But the mighty angel in verse 3 cries out, Who can open this scroll? He says, No one in heaven. 
No one in heaven. We look and we look at these living creatures in heaven, and these are creatures of mythological proportions. They are covered with eyes. They have six wings. They have a face of a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. And most importantly, beyond all that, most importantly, they are closest to the throne of God. They are the ones closest to the throne of God, and they are the ones that Scripture teaches are continually, never stopping, giving praise to our Heavenly Father. Surely these creatures would be able to open the scroll. No. But what about the elders? The elders, yes, the elders, there's 24 of them, and their, thr- their thrones encircle the throne of our Heavenly Father. And so surely they're wear- they are dressed in white, they are pure, they have been washed clean, they are wearing a crown, they are the victors, they have, they, have been, they have followed Jesus Christ on this earth, and now they are being rewarded in heaven forever. Surely these 24 elders, they can come and they can open the scroll. No. Well, what about the angels? There's a mighty angel making a proclamation all across heaven. And then if we get down to verse 11, it says, Then I look and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircle the throne and the living creatures and the elders. So we have mighty angels and we have millions of them. We have millions of them. Surely they can open the scroll. Surely. If not one of them, many of them. Maybe they could just get after it. Work real hard. Once they get tired, roll to the next one. <laughs> you know, let's open this scroll. But no. The angel says there's no one in heaven who can open the scroll. Then he says there's no one on earth. There's no one on earth who can open the scroll. And this one I imagine to John came a little bit easier because there is no man alive who can stand in his own merit before the one true holy God. And so, so I, I don't think there would be a lot of struggle with this, that there's some great people on earth and who do some wonderful things, but they can't stand in and of their own strength before God. So I, I imagine John was okay with this second one. But then we get to the third one and he says, and there's no one under the earth who can open the scroll. There are no men who have died. No great men of God who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, who have been perfected in the glory of heaven, who are worthy to unfold God's plan of eternal history. Who can open the scroll? Only he who is worthy. Who is worthy to open the scroll? We get to verse 5. It says, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Ah, see the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. I read that wrong. Let me do that again. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. He says, look, look, John, there is someone who is able. Look, John, there is someone who is able to open this. And he is the lion of Judah. This is an Old Testament reference, and so I'll take you back there to Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 10. And this is, this is uh, Israel saying what each tribe is going to be like. This is, this is what your lot is going to be like, where you're going to live, how it's going to go for you. And he gets to Judah. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? 
The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until it comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Here's what's going on. Judah is the fourth of twelve sons. Okay, Judah is the fourth son of Israel, but through God's divine providence, he declared that he will be, through the tribe of Judah, that the kings of Israel will come through him. Thus, it's described as a lion. Thus, because he is king, and as the lion is the king of the forest, as the lion is the king of the jungle, so Judah is the lion. He is the king. Reminds me of going to the New Orleans Zoo. New Orleans Zoo has a lion. I went there, and that thing was just laying down, calm. It's probably been fed all it was going to be fed that day, and it was, it was fine. And I was walking by, and there's not much to see. It's kind of cool to look at the lion, how big it is, how powerful it is. But in that moment that I walked by, that lion yawned. That's all he did. He went, and when he opened that mouth, I stepped back in awe. Just to be honest. You could literally stick a watermelon long ways up and put it in its jaws. I'm absolutely serious. That thing was absolutely scary to think that that would attack somebody. That is absolutely terrifying. In fact, I've seen what was the beginnings of a lion attack. You can YouTube this. I encourage you to YouTube it because it's crazy. (laughs) But there is a lion attack on YouTube where these two hunters are out in the African bush and they're going out there and they're going lion hunting, you know, Good, good start to the story. But anyways, they're going out there and they are lion hunting and they go out there with their, with their high-powered rifles and they see this lion off in the distance. And no doubt, this lion sees them <laughs> off in the distance. And they said, okay, okay, here's our opportunity. And so they get, they get their, their rifles ready and then he says, on the count of three, I want you to shoot this lion. I said, one, two, three, Boom! He takes a shot at this lion. And this is a high-powered rifle. That thing knocks the lion off of its feet, just floors the lion. These guys start to celebrate. <laughs> oh, yeah, we just killed a lion. Then the lion got up. <laughs> the lion got up, was obviously not too pleased about this, and started charging, okay? <laughs> it started charging these two men. Well, they start going into panic mode real quick, and they're just firing at will. Bam, 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 bam! Little uh, clouds of dirt are popping up where it's shooting next to the lion and hitting the ground. And finally, in that last moment, the lion lunges at them. I mean, moment of death right here. The lion lunges at them. They get one last shot, perfect shot in the heart of the lion, kills it dead in the middle of the air, and it collapses on the two guys and absolutely floors them and of course they're on adrenaline rush so that didn't matter but but you know this is this is a powerful incredible animal filled with courage filled with dignity filled with power and control and jesus is the lion jesus is the lion of judah he is a descendant of judah but he is the king of kings and he is the lord of lords even till this day the coat of arms you can put it up there greg the coat of arms that is displayed on the city of jerusalem's flag is a lion the coat of arms that is displayed on jerusalem's flag is a lion and it is representative of the lion of judah and i love this guys unbeknownst to the millions of jews and muslims who live in that large city jesus still flies high above them all he is worthy but he's not just the lion of judah he is the root of david 
See, in Scripture, we often get in the New Testament, you can take that down, uh, we often get in the New Testament that Jesus is referred to as the son of David. Jesus is the son of David, and this is because he is from uh, the line of David, and, he, and therefore he's part of the Davidic covenant. Jeremiah thirty-three seventeen is kind of a recap on the Davidic covenant. It says, for this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. That is, he is a, someone from this line will always be king over God's chosen people. But... In our passage in Revelation chapter 5, the angel describes the one worthy of opening the scroll, not as the the descendant of David, not as the son of David, but as the root of David. Roots are the source of life for a tree. It's not its offspring. The roots establish the tree. It's not the other way around. And Jesus made this point during his ministry. I don't know if you remember this story. Matthew 22, 41 through 46. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord, speaking of the Father, said to my Lord, speaking of the Christ, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he also be his son? Hmm, good question. The Pharisees, or it says, no one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Here is the point. Here's the point. Jesus is more than the recipient of authority by heritage. He is the establishment of authority by his sovereign rule. He is God. All right, And so he is the Lion of Judah. He is the Root of David. And it says then he triumphed. He is the triumphant one. He is the one who has overcome. He is the conqueror. He is a victor filled with strength and ability. He is triumphant. He has overcome. He says this about himself. John 16, 33. He says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He came from glory into corruption. He came from sinless perfection into sinful rejection. And though he was tempted in every single way, he never succumbed and sinned. Though he was insulted and he was persecuted and he was hated by many, he did not refuse to give those same people his mercy and his grace. Through all he endured, Jesus is the mighty victor. And so we tie this picture together in verse 5. We tie all this picture together of the Lion of Judah, of the Root of David, of the Triumphant One. And the one who is able to open the scroll is the one that we would expect to be able to open the scroll. It is someone who is filled with authority. It is someone who is filled with strength. Someone who holds the scepter of the King. Someone who is victorious and sovereign and powerful and courageous. So John turns around and he looks. Alright, look, there is someone who is able. Look over there. There he is. John turns around looking for a conquering warrior, Messiah, lion. And what does he see in verse 6? Then I saw a lamb. Then I saw a lamb. He was looking for a lion. And he saw a lamb. The Greek word here means a little pet lamb. So what makes this lamb? 
with everything that is, is rushing through his mind, of everything that has just been described in verse 5, what makes this lamb of verse 6 worthy? What makes this lamb worthy to open the scroll? Verse 6, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, no less, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. There are three things that make this lamb worthy. First off, he is sovereign. The lamb is sovereign. It says he has seven horns. Seven is the number of perfection in Scripture. Horn is a symbol of power in Scripture. So what we have here is the lamb is perfect in power. He is omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants to do. He is perfect in power. He has seven eyes. Again, seven, perfection. Eyes in Scripture represent knowledge. He sees everything that's going on. It's like the narrator of a book. He knows everything that's going to happen before it happens. That is, he is omniscient, okay? Not, he, not only does he does he have the power to do everything, but he knows exactly what he wants to do because he knows everything. And then it talks about those seven eyes being the seven spirits of God. Again, seven, perfection. Spirit of God, talking about the Holy Spirit. And then, then it says the spirit, seven spirits of God that were sent out into all the earth, which means everywhere. He is perfect in presence. He is omnipresent. I love I love thinking about omnipresence because it blows my mind. It blows my mind that, that I can think of God as, as being at the very far end of the universe, at the very last star in our universe that God is there. And I can think of our God as being in Africa sitting next to an orphan who is crying. And I can think of my God being in China sitting next to a widow who is praying. I can think of my God being right here amongst us as we worship Him, as we exalt His name. I can think of my God. But what I don't understand, what I don't get, is how He is fully here, and He is fully there, and He is all there, and all here. He is everywhere, all the time, completely. He is omnipresent. So we have someone who is perfect in strength, we have someone who is perfect in power, and we have someone who is perfectly everywhere, all the time. And what does that make Him? Sovereign. That makes Him in absolute and total control. Who is the only person in all of Scripture that is defined as sovereign? God. God and God alone. This lamb is God. Secondly, this lamb is central. Think about Caroline. Something radical happened to Caroline about a month ago. She turned two. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know, for Carson it was different. Uh, he, he decided the terrible twos would come way earlier uh, but for Caroline she like waited till the day of her birthday uh, and she said okay now it's time all right and and so within the last month this this sweet and docile child has become a little bit of a maniac and uh, and and really the, the the heart behind what's going on with Caroline is she's selfish the heart behind what's going on with Caroline is, is she's selfish. If I'm playing with Carson, oh, no, you didn't. I cannot believe. Uh, I mean, this little girl is as dainty as they come, but she'll come up to me and she'll say, wrestle, wrestle, daddy, wrestle. And so I'll be wrestling with Carson and she'll have none of it. She'll jump in there in the fray because she wants to be a part of it. She does not want to be left out. If Carly serves Carson's food first at the supper table, 
Oh no, you didn't. Can you believe this? This is this is an absolute slap in the face. She wants everything in her little world to circle and to center on her. It's just all about me. Me, 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 me. But guess what, guys? When we get to heaven, Jesus is saying the same thing and it's holy. Jesus is saying the same thing and it is good. The Lamb is truly at the center of all things. It says the angels circle Him in worship. That's, here's the picture, guys. He is the target of our praise. If we come in here and we worship anything other than God through Jesus Christ, then we are missing the mark. All right? He, he is encircled by the elders. The elders represent the people of God. The people who have, who have been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ and have come to know Him through faith. All right? This, are, this is who the elders symbolize. And he, So what is Jesus? He is the focus of the church. Jesus is our focus. He is what we do things for. He is why we do things. He is, he is our ability to do things. Jesus is the focus of the church. And then it says, the living creatures gather around Him. The living creatures represent all of creation. Okay? And so we have the angels in worship. We have the elders who are us in focusing on Him as the center of our church. And then we have all creation centering all their existence on Jesus Christ. He is central. What makes Him worthy? He is sovereign. He is central. But above all, He was slain. Above all, He was slain. We could explore a lot of scriptures. A lot of scriptures that talk about the symbolism of lambs. Right? We could start with Cain and Abel. And we could move on to Isaac asking his father, where, where, Where's the lamb, Dad? Where's, where's the lamb? We could see the Passover lamb of Exodus. We could see the sacrificial lamb of the Day of Atonement. We could see John the Baptist's declaration, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Today we'll encounter the Lamb in the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, verses 5-7 through says, But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Listen to this. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his his mouth. It was our sin. It was our shame. It was our sorrow he bore on the cross. It was our punishment. It was our penalty. It was our pain that he bore on the cross. It was our wrath He received, and it was our death that He died. But what makes the Lamb truly worthy is that He is slain no more. Isaiah 53, 11 says, After the suffering of His soul, He will see the light of life and be satisfied. Even in our own passage, it says, it says I saw a Lamb looking as if it had been slain. He is slain no more. He is standing. He is taking the scroll from the Father. He is not dead. He is alive. Hallelujah. We don't just thank a suffering Savior We exalt the risen Lord. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. 
And that's what we get in verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8 says, He came and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. And when He had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they, wore, uh, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In response to the one who is worthy, there is only one who is worthy. John is crying. He is weeping. Who is worthy? Finally, the Lamb steps up. The Lion of Judah, the Root of David, the triumphant one, the, the Lamb who was slain, steps up. He takes, he takes the, the scroll and he says, I am able to open it. And people fall down in worship. We fall down in worship before the one who is worthy. All of the creatures, that is all of creation, all of the elders, that is all of God's people, fell down on their knees and on their face before God. And they worshipped Him in song. They had harps. This is what we read here about a harp. They worshipped Him in song and they worshipped Him in prayer. They spoke to Him. God, You are worthy. God, You are holy. God, You are awesome. Thank You for the Lamb. Thank you for your son. And next week we will describe their songs. Next week we will dig into the songs found in chapter 5. I want you to see this. Back to the scroll. Many commentators have compared the seven-sealed scroll to a title deed or a will. And in the Old Testament, there were three requirements in order to... to uh, to take the title deed or to take the will. You know, there were three requirements to redeem what was entrusted to you. The Redeemer had to be one, near of kin. The Redeemer had to be two, willing to redeem. And the Redeemer had to be three, able to redeem. And Jesus meets all of these qualifications. He became our flesh, so He is our kinsman. In love, He willingly gave up His life to spare ours. He is willing to redeem. His sacrifice was completely sufficient to cleanse our sins and provide eternal life, so He is able to redeem. He is our kinsman redeemer. And listen, church, this morning, He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our worship. And so I ask you this morning, Wesson Baptist Church, do you know the Lamb. Do you know the Lamb? Have you given your life to follow the Lamb? He is worthy. How will you respond? Let's pray. God, I love you. God, I thank you. I praise you for your Son who came to die for me. Who came <laughs> to die for all of us, to forgive us of our sins, to be the Lamb, your Lamb the sacrificial Lamb of God. And so God, for those in here who do not know Him, have not trusted their hearts to Him, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that You would open up their eyes to the reality that forever and ever, when history is unfolded, only through Him will we have eternity with God. Only through Him will that picture not be a snapshot or a little note, a side note in a book. But it will be our eternity. It will be our reality. It will be our existence with the Father forever. I can't imagine it, but I know it's better than what I can imagine. And so God, I pray right now for those who don't know You, that You would draw them to Yourself through Your Spirit 
because of your sacrifice. God, I just pray for you to move right now. Lord, if you're dealing with us in any other way, Lord, I, I, I know your word speaks. Your word is alive and active, and, and I, I can't control which way you go. And so, Father, if there are other people in here who just need to make a decision, who just need to, to change, who just need to, to repent, who just need to turn and, and look to you again, God, would you draw them to their knees this morning and, and lead them to that place? Father, we just ask for your spirit to move in a mighty way trust that your word will not will not return void. God, I love you. I praise you. It's in Jesus' holy name I pray.